upon marking song number 207. May I invite you to remain turning your Bible to Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. And there, in fact, will be the place where you and I will take up a consideration in just a moment as we look at some of the features and some of the beautiful matters presented in that particular passage of Scripture. You may notice on the wall that's before you, I've entitled this lesson, Saved Like the Thief on the Cross. It might well be you've heard someone make that comment. Maybe you've heard them, in fact, comment that they would, in fact, like to be saved like the thief on the cross. I thought tonight, in fact, we would give some attention to not only that idea, but to ask several ideas in the Word of God about that very, about that very matter. In almost all cases, it would seem that the thrust or the motivation, the particular that might cause someone to make that statement is that they would like to circumvent Bible baptism. The thief wasn't baptized, is what they will claim. And therefore, why can I not do what he did? Well, why not tonight, for the next few moments at least, that we not only reflect on the idea, the concept that surrounds that, that particular discussion, but to look at several associated features in the Bible that really have a great bearing on the final conclusion about that. I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Let's develop that. As you close that slide with me, that's the mere way in which I would present a thrust to take us to the next slide. I've chosen to, to, to divide the lesson and present it in such a way that we will look at a number of features one by one. And the first one, it would seem to me, needs in fairness to be a reminder on the work of Jesus. To develop that, would you begin at the top? You and I know quite well that while here upon earth, this one that you and I call Jesus the Christ was God in the flesh. It's not like he was merely a man. It's not as though he had the particular limitations that you and I might well have not being God. In the sense that he was God, that means the particulars of that which attaches to being God were things which were in his possession. Among those other things, could I point out in largeness, in Matthew 1, verse 23, Call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even at the moments before he was born, thus it was reminded that he was to be regarded and called Emmanuel, which signified the fact that God is with us. Not only that, in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then this statement is made, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And thus, isn't it a reminder to us that while here tabernacling in the flesh, he had not the limitations which you and I in so many ways would have. When I state it that way, what I mean are the next thoughts on that slide. Look at that next one with me. Jesus could read the hearts of men and women. You didn't need to tell him what you were thinking. He knew already. John 2 verse 25 reminds of us that no man needed to tell him because he already was able to read, to construct, to appreciate that which was in the heart of that person. Among other things, that would mean he would know whether an individual was truly penitent or not. Now you and I wouldn't know that. All we could do is accept what they say and observe the consequences of their actions, but the Lord could have read a gentleman's heart or a lady's heart and he would have known immediately 
whether or not they meant what they said. He would have known whether or not they truly were appreciative of what they were claiming. In particular, in Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, we read there that Jesus had the explicit capacity to forgive sins. Now, you and I know nobody can do that, only God. Because sin is a transgression of God's will, 1 John 3 verse 4. And thus, because it's a transgression of God's will, only God can forgive it. Only God could declare that that matter is closed. Only God could declare that things are again right. And yet Jesus could forgive sins. Isn't that another reminder? Isn't that a strong teaching that He was God? Notice He could read the hearts of people and He could forgive sins. You and I shall use those thoughts in just a moment. But apply them to this thief on the cross. You and I are quite well aware that here was the Lord flanked on each side by a thief as all three were crucified on, on that particular day. One of those thieves, as you and I just heard, Brother Wayne read a moment ago, pointed out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you might remember he even rebuked the other thief in the sense that we've received justly for what we've done, but this man has done nothing wrong, referring to the Lord. At that point, could Jesus have read the gentleman's heart? Would he have known whether he meant what he was saying? Would he have been able to appreciate the character of the assertion that the man was making in light of the kingdom of the Lord? You and I know the Lord could have done it. For that reason, when you close that particular slide today, we need to make a quick observation. Jesus is not operating this way today. In fact, the fullness of the Word of God would lead us to conclude that His last will and testament, that of course has been presented to you and to me, is not such that He saves people independently and separately from the particular of what that will revealed. Every example we have of the book of Acts and every passage beyond that in the remainder of the New Testament leads us to appreciate, doesn't it? that in terms of the mechanism of salvation, the Lord doesn't pick and choose. God is no respecter of persons, to borrow the words of Romans 2.11. In fact, isn't that what Peter asserted in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35? Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. And thus, we shouldn't expect then that God will circumvent that which is His will in some specialized way. This first observation concerning the work of Jesus only leads to another one. What about the very matter of repentance? Now, you and I have already seen in so many examples of the Word of God, God's very strong consideration, His strong teaching why don't you and I apply that in some ways to the matter of this thief? Both thieves initially railed on Jesus, both of them. That's the conclusion you and I reach in Matthew's version of the gospel accounts. Both thieves, in fact, were somewhat strongly against the Lord. However, at some point during the course of that day, one of those thieves had a change of heart. One of those thieves, you see, apparently come to realize this man's done nothing wrong, but we deserve justly for what we are receiving. 
Now that indicates, again, a change of heart, a change of mind. It suggests somewhat of a repentance based on what that word would mean. On this slide that's before you, you and I notice in Luke chapter 23, verses 40, 41, and 42, again, one of those thieves made a statement that reads like this. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Notice the language this thief used. Here was a man hanging on a cross. He was going to die in just a very few hours. And you'll notice he makes reference to God. And he words it like this, Don't you, as he spoke to that other thief, don't you fear God knowing that we're in a process of condemnation? Thus the wording would seem to suggest that man, at least by way of reference, had thoughts about God. But look at the next verse. And we indeed justly, this man had a sense of justice. He appreciated somewhat about that which is proper and appropriate and right concerning one's behavior and conduct. And he even asserted relative to these circumstances, we are receiving that which is proper. But then he makes this statement. But this man, speaking of Christ, hath done nothing amiss. How did he know the Lord had done nothing amiss? By what previous knowledge did he have? Had he known Jesus prior to this day of crucifixion? Had he been some way connected with him by way of teaching in days previous? We don't know the answer to that. But we can appreciate in light of his statement that First, he agreed to the nature of God and His justice, and he highlighted the fact of the Lord's purity. And now we arrive at verse 42. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, notice, he then says, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. As you consider further on that slide that's now before you, the very definition of the Bible's presentation of repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. That seems to be well appreciative of what this thief himself underwent that day. He first railed on the Lord, but over the course of that day, a change of mind that generated very different kinds of language and a very different mindset. And with that, you close that slide and appreciate that didn't Jesus previously teach? In Luke 13, verse 3, Nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Did this man repent? Did he, in fact, present evidence, witnessed appreciation of the fact that there was a change in his demeanor? There's every evidence that that would be a fair assessment. What about the next slide? What else could be said about this thief? Could I invite you to give thought to baptism? As I mentioned earlier, it is almost a uniform presentation to use the thief in an effort to get around baptism. I want to be saved, but I don't want to be baptized. And don't we have a Bible example of a man who was saved and he wasn't baptized? Well, why don't you and I think about that perhaps from this perspective? And it's the one you can appreciate on that particular slide. Did you notice? This thief made mention of the kingdom of the Lord. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. How did he know about the Lord's kingdom? Where had he learned about that? 
Again, we don't know much about this thief prior to this episode that's right here before us. We don't know where he was raised. We don't know the circumstances of his family. He may well have heard John the Baptist preaching. The reason I say that is this. John the Baptist, his critical message surrounded the kingdom. Do you remember the teaching of Matthew 3 verse 2? John the Baptist went through that entire area preaching, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's both repentance and the kingdom mentioned in one, in one particular setting. Had this man heard the preaching of John the Baptist? Had he been influenced by it? Had this thief at some point been motivated to give some thought to the preaching of John the Immerser? I ask it that way because in Luke chapter 7, we have the following statement. I'd like to read verses 29 and 30 of Luke chapter 7. The subject of baptism now comes directly before us, and it reads like this. I'll begin in reading in verse number 28. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, not being baptized of Him. Did you notice that there was a reference to large numbers of people were baptized, and then that final commentary was shown in verse number 30. It was the counsel of God that they be baptized according to the baptism of John, and those that didn't rejected God's counsel. So may I offer you the thought, this thief may well have been baptized. We don't know. At some previous time, maybe under the hearing of the preaching of John, the motivation and the teaching centered on that which John presented, there could have been a former day that this thief had been baptized. I don't know that, and nowhere does the Bible say. But at the very least, notice it is a possibility. And it would connect rather strongly to that thief's mention of the kingdom. And it would also make mention of the justice of God and the fact that there was an element of justice connected to what they had done, which they deserved that which they were receiving. To say all that's to say, there are many things that might well have been true concerning this thief and that which, of course, preceded the moments and the efforts of this day. So far as you and I have looked at these matters, what about yet more? Other things that could also be mentioned. I suppose all of us, having studied, having considered, having in fact given some matter a very strong understanding connected to this thief, we probably would have come to this slide pretty quickly. What about the matter of Christ's death and will? I mentioned in some ways near the beginning of the lesson somewhat about this, but may we be a bit more thorough and may we be a bit more careful in some of the observations that might need to be made. First of all, at the top of that slide, you and I know some things rather well. As you look forward to that which followed the matters of these thieves and Jesus on the cross, you and I remember that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they came to break the various legs of those, of course, later in that day. But the text tells us the Lord died at the ninth hour. So about three in the afternoon, Jesus himself passed away. 
And as they came to hasten the deaths, they found the Lord already dead. Now the text goes on to say they did break the legs of the two thieves, suggestive of the fact both of them were still alive. And that leads me to make the comment that you see on that slide. It would thus appear rather clearly that Jesus died before the thief did. Jesus passed away prior to that thief that had said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. But thou, that order of events only leads us to note this. With the death of the Lord, had His will been probated yet? Jesus may have died a few minutes earlier that day, but had His will, had His last will and testament been put into practice and put into action, the answer to that you and I know rather well. That last will and testament was not put in force yet because that wasn't to be the case until, in the very words of Jesus Himself, those apostles would be endued with power from on high. And only then, Mark 9 verse 1, would they testify the character and greatness of that coming kingdom. And thus the Lord's will, though He had died, that will was not yet put into practice and force, if you please. That would not occur for again a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost as recorded in the second chapter of the book of Acts. One of the statements the Hebrew writer makes for us in Hebrews 9 verse number 16 is that a will is not of course in force until the death of the testator, the death of the one who wrote the will. And so even though the Lord had passed away, the will had not taken effect. That which you and I would regard and consider as the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Isn't it fair then and safe to say that this thief did not live beneath the gospel ministration? Baptism was not a command for him. In the same way that taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week was not a command for him. In the same way that other particulars often attached to what you and I regard today, those were not matters beneath which he lived. The law was different. He lived beneath a different law than the one in which you and I appreciate the commandment so strongly regarded in the gospel way of baptism per se. The idea of living under a different law or a different particular legislation is not a foreign thing at all to us. In fact, I've listed an example on the slide for you to consider. Are you aware of the fact that as great a man as Abraham Lincoln was, he never once paid any income tax? Not once. Now, that might cause you and I to frown. Well, how did he get by without paying it? After all, he wasn't president his whole life. Easy explanation. The income tax law didn't go into effect until 1913, long after Abraham Lincoln had died. And so your great-great-great-great-granddaddy, he never paid any income tax. Point is, they lived beneath a particular of government and law for which income tax was not legislated. Now, we don't frown on them because they didn't pay it. They didn't, they didn't have to. It wasn't expected of them. In the same way, the thief didn't live under the gospel administration, the present law of Christ. If he was a Jew, he lived beneath that law of Moses while he was on earth. If he was not a Jew, he lived beneath the patriarchal system while he was on earth. But neither one is the same as the law of Christ. 
And thus, isn't it interesting that this thief, though he might have been baptized, and though he certainly exhibited repentance, he didn't live beneath the law that required Bible baptism the way the New Testament describes it. Isn't it interesting, as you close that particular slide with me, to think about those particulars of this thief. And it brings me to this slide in which we will give some thought to the terms of forgiveness. As you and I did reflect upon this thief on the cross, to be saved perhaps like the thief on the cross, isn't it still fair to comment that that which causes anybody, be it him or you or me, to be lost is sin? That's the problem, isn't it? It is that which separates a person from God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. It is that which is the transgression of His will, 1 John 3, verse 4. It is that for which Christ went to the cross bearing our sins, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Highlighting those aspects, isn't it now a simple matter of commenting about the judgment? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10. And so on that precious and sweet recognition of what the Bible teaches on that point, in this Christian age, the forgiveness of sins is predicated upon the revelation of what the Bible says must be done in order to receive that forgiveness. And it has included baptism. That wasn't your choice or mine. It wasn't the choice of Moses or David or anybody else. It was the will of the infinite God of heaven who selected to incorporate and include and place as necessary that among the terms required in order to obey the Lord. And thus, rather than to turn a dim opinion on baptism, we rather frankly highlight the beauty of it. We appreciate the sweetness that's accomplished in that act of baptism. It might well be on that slide. We recollect the words that were told to Paul in Acts 22. Why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Isn't it fair to say that Paul believed... He had already spoken to Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had had a lengthy and piercing conversation with him. Did he believe in the Lord? Oh, absolutely. Had he repented? He just spent three days, hadn't eaten anything. The difficulty and troubling of his heart and mind in light of that had caused him to be sufficiently moved to where he had undergone a period of withdrawal from food. Does that indicate he'd repented? At least there's a strong suggestion of it. But the belief didn't save him. They didn't wash his sins away. And neither did the repentance. Ananias told him, What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He still needed to call on the name of the Lord. He still needed, you see, to have his sins washed away. And in that sense, the language connects that identically to baptism. And so it was that that man attended to that need immediately. And today, in wisdom, you and I would do no differently. Doesn't that, in fact, relate rather powerfully to what the Lord had already preached? 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. There is a connection, you see, to not only what the Lord delivered then, but also to what is so beautifully highlighted in so many examples you and I encounter in the book of Acts. Near the bottom of that slide, could I not comment then of the gloriousness and the sheer joy and privilege that's ours to give thought to the fact we have been told what the plan of salvation is. How miserable would it be if in some way the Bible told us about the reality of sin and what it was going to cause, but did not tell us in direct language what had to be done. Talk about a life of sheer misery, uncertainty, never knowing what exactly would remove those sins, but you and I have been told explicitly and carefully and at a level that's easy to understand. The gospel plan of salvation is as direct as you and I enjoy it today. And quite frankly, there isn't a person on earth today that could be saved like the thief on the cross was because we don't live beneath the law He did. We live under a different law, the law of Christ. We're joyously thankful for that law. We appreciate the greatness of Christ's blood that made it a possibility. And we enjoy the benefits and we enjoy the nice fruits that go with it on so many occasions. As we come to this final slide, the thief on the cross, we've looked at these particulars. We began with the work of the Lord, His capacity of understanding the heart and mind of men, and fully appreciative that He would have known if that man had repented or not. In fact, speaking of repentance, this thief gave evidence that he had Surely to that we could add this observation. It's possible he had been baptized. We do not know that for sure. But we merely connect the language and the references he makes to the preaching of John with perhaps the understanding that much of that Jesus also had preached. For instance, in Matthew 4.17, Jesus himself said, Repent ye, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Maybe he had heard the Lord preach on some distant occasion in the past. But then we noticed finally about Jesus' death and the will, which of course was His last will and testament. This very day, you and I know what the terms of forgiveness are. We need not rest in doubt. We need not be bothered by possibilities otherwise. The Lord has told us, if you tonight, anyone in this assembly, perhaps have never become a Christian, and though, though you realize what took place at Calvary, you've never allowed the application of the Lord's blood to your life personally. We would be honored to assist and to help tonight, and that plan of salvation hasn't changed the slightest since the New Testament individuals first gave it. To believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known the sheer joy of that kind of life, but somewhat of late, Maybe decisions or other choices or perhaps other particular directions in life have brought a cloud in which you know that things are not as they ought to be. And God is not well pleased with you at this moment. You could make that right. The Lord would be more than honored to move out of your life any guilt connected with whatever the sins may have been. Absolute forgiveness. 
He only asks that you repent of all those wrongs. And you make confession of them. And as you do that, we tonight would be, pri- would be privileged and pleased to pray to our Heavenly Father on your behalf. If it would be the possibility now that someone would desire to respond in a public way, we're going to use the thief as a motivation. He admittedly was on a cross, but he come to his senses recognizing who it was that was beside him. May you and I realize who can be beside us, walking faithfully with us, leading us toward those golden climbs of heaven. Tonight, if we could be in some way in assistance in this way, we want you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.